All right, good morning, Highland Gospel. So good to be back with you guys today. And uh, I love being able to have this opportunity um, to, to bring the word. Um, I'll be honest, I wrote the sermon, and then I rewrote the sermon. Um, it's never fun doing that, but it's fun to get, learn, you know, more about it. Let's just dive right into it. Father God, we just thank you so much for today. God, I know it's easy to take these days for granted, or we can be overwhelmed with the situations of life, Father God. But Lord, just as we've been hearing over and over and over again from Paul in this letter, God, just this idea of joy. Um, and we know that it only comes from you, Lord. And so we pray that today that our hearts would be open to you, that our hearts would be bent towards you, that they would be hungry and seeking to hear your voice. And not just that you would speak, but Father God, that we would be obedient to what you're telling us, Lord. And so we just ask for your favor in this time, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. I just want to kind of just jump right into this. So um, we have a few guys in the church, right? And they're all very diligently training for a race that's coming up pretty soon. And I'm not sure how some of them are feeling about it. Um, but I will tell you this right now that I, I'm not athletic. I mean, I did sports as a kid, but the idea of me like committing time consistently to working, that's just not me. I'm sorry. Um, I, I usually joke, I say I've never once hurt myself with a bag of Doritos. Um, but uh, there's this thing that's happening in our world in the past few years, just recently, and then I, like last year or two, uh, there's been a word added to the dictionary, and it's a word that's trying to figure out this new niche that's actually not a niche anymore. Um, and the word is athleisure, athleisure, okay, athleisure, kind of a weird one. But uh, so this small niche, which in 2016 was $270 billion with a projected 30% increase by 2020. So that's a really big market, huge, and that was just 2016. And what, what, this, what this niche is, is you had people who were active, okay, yoga, working out, whatever, and they had this problem. They, they kind of got tired of bringing workout clothes and work clothes. So what they did is they just started wearing their yoga pants or whatever out into their normal life. They just kind of blended the two together because it was easy and it was comfortable. But the problem is this, is that not everybody wearing yoga pants works out. Let's be honest. Let's be honest, right? What has become a, a, a way of trying to figure out how to make your life work really has just become comfortable, right? So uh, we like to wear them when we're, we're Netflix binging, right? Or just to make a quick errand out to the store. It's just, it's easy. It's comfortable, but the weird problem about it is this is that it's become such a big market that all of these fashion companies have jumped in on it. They said, we want a part of that. So some of this attire that's originally intended for working out has become almost too fashionable for working out. It's become an actual clothing line. And, and some of these clothing lines go for really expensive. Some of the shoes and the pants, like crazy. Um, so what's really happening is this is you've got you've got on one hand the idea to work out but the clothes are almost too nice to work out in and then you want to go to work because you're going to go work out later but now you're too dressed down for work so we're kind of trying to balance this thing right and it's not really working on either end and so Paul talks a little bit about this so uh, I'm going to springboard we I know we did chapter three the end of chapter 3 last week, but we're going to springboard from that. So if you can flip back to 3.17 for me one quick second. And he says this, he says in 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lonely body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even 
to subject all things to himself. So Paul is getting at something here. So I, uh, I've been a father for a few years now. We have three kids, right? Our oldest is almost 11. And uh, there's some things I've learned about fathering and about myself and about little people, tiny humans. Um, and there are things that come, well, one, there's a lot of mundane and ordinary in, in parenting. You know, hey, uh, brush your teeth. You know, oh, I'm too tired. Well, we do this every night. You got to brush your teeth, right? It's the same old, same old. But there, there are the things that I've learned that are natural, and then there are things that are learned, okay? So some of these natural things that come to my kids, uh, one example is this, complaining. I did not have to teach my kids how to complain. In fact, if you want to hear complaining, just make them a meal. I guarantee you one of my three kids is going to find something to complain about, okay? Uh, some other things that come naturally are uh, violence. I know it sounds weird, but when a sibling has something the other sibling wants, I did not have to teach my kids to hit. It comes naturally. So there are other things, though, that are learned, right? So we teach our children to be grateful for what they have. So when we go over to somebody else's house, we tell them, eat what is served, right? Because we're our we're the guest in their home, right? So I teach my kids, don't hit. Work it out. Figure out a solution, but don't hit. So there are things that are learned, and there are things that are natural. And what's happening here is Paul is getting at that. He's saying there are things that we know naturally, but there are things that we need to learn. And just like any family, we have to learn how to live with each other. We have to learn how to live in community. So he, I love this, he's writing in a super practical way. The great thing about Philippians is this, is that it's the only letter that Paul wrote that isn't dealing with specific doctrinal issues. He isn't blasting a church for their wrong doctrine. See, these enemies that Paul is speaking about are probably people who are claiming to be Christians, and yet they're so focused on themselves. They're so focused on their satisfactions. I want to jump right into this. So my first point is this. Paul says that we are to be different. That's what he says. 317 through 21, he says we've got to be different. Okay? And our first difference is this. Our, our foundation is different. Our foundation is different. So we know, we've talked about this before, and Paul loves it, but he uses the word therefore or since then, which is really a term of conclusion. So Paul is making an argument, and now he's concluding it. So the argument he has been making has been, we be different. Okay? We're not like the enemies of the cross who are focused on their own self. We're different. Paul uses a word throughout Scripture called ecclesia. We've heard it before, and it just is church. We use it all the time, church, church, church. But this Greek word is actually used long before Paul ever used it in secular Greek. And the word just simply means this. It is a group that is called out for a common conversation. And that conversation typically was politics. So, so the thing about this, so, so when Paul refers to the church, he's saying we're called out for a specific purpose. But we're not called out to talk politics. We're not called out to discuss the current trends and things like that. We're called out for a specific purpose. And our purpose as the church of God is for him. That's what separates us. There's a lot of groups that are together right now. But we're unique because we are for him. And we are through him. And we are by him. So I think as people, our affections are a lot like water, right? We gravitate more to what resembles ourselves and what we are comfortable with. Let me say that again. I think our affections are a lot like water. We gravitate 
to what resembles ourselves and what we are comfortable with. You go to any party and you find the people that you're most like, and that's how you kind of hang out with, right? This is what we do. And Paul, yet, he says, be different. Don't be like other people. Just because the pressure of the world is at your door, don't be like them. Let me just take a minute and just remind us of what Philippi was like when he founded it, okay? So remember, Paul is a Jew, okay, from Tarsus, which if you remember, it's kind of modern-day Turkey right now. So he was a Roman citizen, okay, and he had his first interaction in Philippi with an Asiatic woman named Lydia. And he also had an interaction with a slave girl who was most likely Greek, who was under demonic influence, and a jailer who may have been a retired soldier just trying to be consistent in his work. That's his first interactions with the church of Philippi. That's the founding of the church. So there was nothing that brought them together other than Christ. I mean, like, stop and think about this. You have a high-profile woman, graded business. In fact, if you start reading her story, you realize that she's got a pretty decent life, okay? And then you have, on the other extreme, a retired Roman soldier, okay? And he is just a blue-collar worker. He's just trying to do his job. And, 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 and in fact, it almost seems like he likes his job a little too much. Because in the text it says, they handed, him over, they handed Paul and Silas over safely and said, hey, take care of him safely. And what does he do? He puts them in the stocks. And back then, stocks aren't the whole like head and hand thing. It was chains and you're kind of contorted sometimes. And, you know, so this guy kind of took that degree and he says, yeah, yeah, I'll take him safely. And he put them in stocks. He kind of sort of loves his job. So if you think about it, what would these two have in common? Would you ever see them mingling at a party? Would you ever see them going out to a ball game? No. There just wouldn't have been that commonality. Except for Christ. Christ brings them together. Also, because Philippi had close gold mines, and the town was actually on the route, the trade route called the Via Ignatia. And because it's a Roman colony and Hellenistic community, got a lot of Greeks, right? There's just this massive amount of transportation of people and cultures and lifestyles. And Paul says, be different. With all the different beliefs out there, with all the different ways of doing life, be different. In uh, kind of jumping ahead, in verse 9, Paul says this. He says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. And so we stand in what we have come to know and understand as followers of Christ. Also, similarly, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he writes, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. And to Timothy... He says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus and to also continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. So Paul tells them in the very beginning of, verse of chapter 4, he says, guess what? Stand firm. Stand firm. Don't look at the world. Don't look at the people that say they're believers and yet they're watering their lives with their satisfactions. Don't be like them. Stand firm. Hold tightly to what you have learned. In Hebrews 3.14 it says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That word stand firm really means persistent, grounded, it was the idea of a, of a soldier in the middle of war. And the battle's coming to him. And they said, don't retreat. Stand firm. Hold your position. Fight the fight. So Paul says, fight the fight. There's a current trend right now that's kind of happening amongst younger millennials. 
And uh, they're, they're doing this thing that's kind of called this, uh, they're actually using the word testifying. This is my testimony. And, and, and they're, they're saying this is my unraveling. And literally what they're doing is they're, 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 they're kind of shucking off the weight of their Christian upbringing as kids. They're having a hard time understanding the, the, the way that the Bible talks about God and the way that the world is. And they're saying that doesn't make any sense. And so what they're doing is they're broadening their horizon. They're broadening their view and they're having more acceptance of things and people and ideas. And they're actually shirking off the Christian faith. And they think they're getting smarter and they think they're getting more spiritual but they're really just walking away. The interesting, I often wonder what Paul would be like today, how he would be received. Pretty sure he'd be called a bigot, hateful, right? Not loving. I mean, you can't go around calling people enemies, dogs, you know? It wouldn't be taken today. It's not tolerant. And yet Paul says, stand firm. But there's also something here. He says, notice how often he mentions how you've seen or heard from the people in your life. So Paul makes a direct correlation. He says, standing firm is directly correlated to where you're learning your truth. So as a parent, I've learned that My life matters, not just what I tell my kids, but how I live my life. If you actually hear a lot of these millennials and their testimonies about walking out of the Christian faith, a lot of it's rooted in the way that they're perceiving their faith through their parents' actions, right? So they have dads who are angry, and they say, well, I don't want that Jesus. So who you are and how you live your life matters, not just in what you say. My second point, we're going to kind of jump around, but my second point is this, is our values are different. So our foundation is different, and our values are different. Notice this, that Paul talks about the enemies, and it's very personal, right? It's, it's individualistic. It's all about them. It's about their needs, about their feelings, about their wants, their satisfactions. But Paul does something different. He says this. He talks about people. He uses words like our. And he describes them as whom I love and long for. My joy and crown, my beloved. Hebrews 3, 12-13 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's a personal responsibility there. Check your hearts. But then he says this, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I hear a lot today about privacy of faith privacy of faith. You know, my faith is my own. This is my journey, right? We love those pastors that talk about don't judge, right? We love the story where Jesus says, hey, you know what? You got a speck in your brother's eye and you got a log in your eye. Don't worry about your brother. We love those verses. We cling to them and we, we, we separate ourselves from people. We isolate ourselves. But the sad thing is, is that we wonder when sin happens. How, how could they do that? Like, why, why, why would they do that? They had a great life. They had a family. And why would he choose to do that? Why would she run up? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But the problem is that we've, we've made it so specific to ourselves that we're not for each other anymore. We're not helping each other anymore. And all of a sudden, sin happens. And we're like, wow, where'd that come from? Spurgeon points out in the verse from Hebrews 3, says there's two things we need to draw from this passage. And that is one, 
we need to first hear exhortation from others. We have to. We have to allow people to speak into our lives. And two, we need to practice exhortation to others. We need to be speaking into people's lives. You know, um, most of the time I'm up here and uh, I put a lot of time, Nate puts a lot of time into these moments where we can serve you. I think through, I pray through, I talk through songs and ideas because I want to bless the church. I want to encourage the church. And there's this, this weird thing sometimes is that uh, it can be hard up here. I'm not asking that we be super, super over-the-top charismatic people. But my faith is encouraged when I see you guys respond. Just like you would want me to walk in my faith, right? Right, it's kind of like this. If I, if I went to a concert and I, and I bought a ticket and I was excited, one of my favorite bands, and I'm going to see them, and they did nothing. If it was almost like they didn't want to be there, right? Like, how would I respond? I'd, I'd want my money back, right? That was a horrible show. I'm pretty sure I'd tweet about it. Ooh, not good. Horrible show. But the same way, vice versa, if, 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 if as the band, they, they practice and they put together that show and they come out and they're excited because hopefully you're excited because they want to share their music with you and they get out there and they start playing and they realize that nobody's into it. They're going to lose heart. They're going to lose heart. It's the same way. Church, we, we need each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to build each other up. I need to know how God's working in your life. I need to know where you are joyful and where you're needing to weep. I need to know those times. See, for Paul, people mattered the most. Don't get me wrong. You know, Paul loved Jesus tremendously, did he not? Oh, he loved him. But second to that, he loved people. There's this thing, this, uh, so Paul uses this word crown, and it's stephanos. I love that word, because it's actually where my name comes from. So if you're a Stephen, I love this. This idea, the stephanos, was a mark of royal or exalted rank, a prize in public games or a symbol of honor. It's that leaf wreath that gets put upon the head of the champion. It was a huge thing, huge thing. And so what Paul's saying here in his letter, he says, you're my joy and my crown. He says that when I'm in the throne room of heaven, when I finally get there and I'm before my king and savior, he's going to look back. And he's not doing this because he thinks he's earned his salvation. He's doing it because he says, look, Lord, I have done what you've asked me to do. These people right here, the church, this is what I poured my life out for. They're my crown. This is what he's going to boast in, is how God works in people's lives. So my question today is, church, is this, who is our crown? Who are we going after? Who are we hoping that one day we can present to Christ and say, I poured my life out for them. I prayed for them. I did what I needed to do that they might be yours. Church, are we inviting people here? And not just to be another addition to Highland Gospel, but are we seeking people that they would be the body of Christ? So we value people and we value with our minds. So as Christians, we are to be intentional about our thoughts. So he kind of jumps ahead. I'm jumping ahead here. And at the end, he talks about, he says, if there's anything, anything 
at all. That is true. Honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. There's any excellence, anything worthy of praise. Think about these things. See, if we want to act differently, we need to think differently. There's an old adage. It says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. See, for Paul, it wasn't just about reaping what we sow. It's reaping where we sow. So if you're struggling in your life, it might be because of what you're dwelling upon and what you're putting into your mind and into your heart. See, there's this... um, there's this thing I've learned, once again, as being a dad, is um, they don't do well when you tell them to do something, okay? Everybody following me who has kids? So when I was younger, right, uh, I had chores, like probably most families do, and uh, I didn't like being told to do my chores. Pride. What I like to do was tell my mom, I'll get to it when I'm ready, There's this act of control, right? So my mom would say, hey, you need to take out that trash. Great, it'll still be there. I'll do it when I'm ready. Because I wanted to feel that I was part of that, that I was in control of that. I didn't like my mom telling me what to do. I wanted the praise for doing it because I chose to do it. But there's this thing I've been learning about my kids is I don't do it enough, and I really should do it more, is this, is as I try to get in the habit of saying, there's nothing you can do that can ever take away my love, and there's nothing you can ever do that can add more of my love. My love is my love because you're my children, okay? Now, I can still be disappointed in actions, right? But it's not going to change my love. My love is always there. And so what I've noticed is this, is that when, I, when they get that into their spirit, when that becomes a part of who they are, now they, they'll forget it, and I've got to go back and remind them, but for those moments when they get that into them, there's a difference. I'm not fighting as much with them. They want to do things because they understand my love is there for them. So they're not doing it out of obligation. They're doing it because I'm their father and they want to please me. And it's the same thing in our life. I think today some of us need to hear that. There's nothing you can do that can ever add to God's love for you. And there's nothing you can ever do that can ever take away his love from you. We aren't called to do things out of obligation. We are called to do things because he is a good father. And so, when when Paul says, do these things, we don't do them out of obligation. We do them because we see God. We see his deep love for us. And so we do the work of thinking about what's good and holy and righteous. And it's not easy. We love to dwell on the negative, right? I was talking to Nate, and I was kind of saying, hey, you know, here's some ideas. And and he threw out this suggestion, and I loved it. I didn't see it. So Paul has been talking in a very practical way. He's been talking about people and how we relate to each other, okay? And Nate said, what if? What if when he's saying, hey, Think about these things. What if it's not just about the thoughts? What if it's about the things in people? Stop and think about it. What if it's about the things in people? We're pretty good about thinking about the negative things of people, aren't we? Oh, we love to dwell on those, don't we? We love to criticize them and point them out. But what if Paul is saying, guess what? For each other, think about the good things. 
Think about what's lovely. Think about right. Focus on those things in somebody. Love them. Just love them. Third point is this. So our foundation is different. Our values are different. And third, our experience is different. So once again, just remind you that Paul has no doctrinal issues in here. What he has is, he's just got poor practices he's dealing with. And namely, two women that aren't getting along. So uh, we hear more and more today about the need to just get along, right? So if we, if we just mind our own business or if we just have more love, the world would be a way better place, Right? But Paul hears of a situation within the church among two women, and he feels and he believes and important enough to address it. So there's a song going around on the radio right now, and, and the, the song is Bleed the Same. And this is a Christian song, and it says, the chorus is this, we all bleed the same. We're more beautiful when we come together. We all bleed the same. So tell me why, tell me why we're divided. If we're going to fight, let's fight for each other. If we're going to shout, let's be let, let love be the cry. We all bleed the same, so tell me why, tell me why we're divided. I think on the surface it sounds really good. I think it's something we could all buy into. But the problem is that when you look at the song, it doesn't get to the heart of things. It's so surfacey. It says just get along. Can't we just get along? But it's more than that. It's more than that. So John... In his recording of Jesus in the Gospels, John chapter 13, he says this, Love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. By this we'll know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that's our command. We need to love each other. I think what's interesting is this. Is Jesus says they, don't know, they won't know that you're my disciples because of the building that you have, because of the programs that you have, because of the amount of money that's coming in. It's not about that stuff. He says, guess what? They're going to know that you are my disciples because of the way you love each other. And there's two things I take out of that. One, Jesus sets the standard. Love as I have loved you. And two, the love that Jesus described is not natural. We can't just do it ourselves. Because if we could do it ourselves, Jesus wouldn't feel the need to tell us to do it. Right? In Philippians 2, 3, it says, In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Paul loves this constant theme of others, others, others. The interesting thing about Philippians, I think we tend to forget sometimes, is all of Paul's letters would have been written to a specific person in the church, a recipient. And that recipient would then have read orally to the whole body. A public reading. And that letter then would have been passed to other churches. So just for a moment, bear with me. Think about, you're in the church of Philippi. Okay? You're there right now. You're sitting. You're excited. Right? You've got this great relationship with Paul. It's been a while since you've heard from him. You heard that he was in prison. Right? All these things are going on. And you get a letter. And you're excited. And you can't wait to hear it. And he's going through. And you're encouraged. You hear his love for you, right? And you're like, this is such a great letter. It's good. And all of a sudden, you hear this. And I entreat Udiah. And I entreat Sintichi to get along. Whoa. I mean, how would you like your name in the middle of church, right? This great letter with Paul. Things are going well. And bam, right there, like everything's called out. And we don't know what the problem is. We, we, we know it's not doctrinal, so it's got to be personalities. These women were just not getting along. We don't know why. We don't know how long. But it made word to Paul, and he had to address it. And in that moment, in that church, you're like in the spotlight, these two women, and you're like, oh my goodness. But notice that Paul doesn't put blame on one. He doesn't say, hey, it's you. He says, guess what? 
He doesn't say, Udiah, you do you, and Sentiji, you do do. If you just stay over on that side of the room, you're good. And if you just stick to your ministry, it'll be fine. He says, no, guess what? You and you, just get along. Deal with it. We need to be dealing with our things, church. We have to. I hate to point this out, but we've seen what happens to a church when stuff goes undealt with. We know the pain. We know the hurt. We know the division. We got to deal with it. The other thing, too, is this. He doesn't just leave it at them. He brings somebody else in. We don't know who the recipient is. We don't know if that word is an actual name or just simply a, kind of a common, common word to specify somebody. We don't know. But what he does is he says this, you two women get along. Oh, and by the way, you help them. Help them. Minister to them. Don't let it go any longer. So Paul remedies the divisiveness by once again reaffirming their need to agree. I love it because Paul, it says that he comes alongside. It's the parakaleo. It's the same word that we have for Holy Spirit, the paraclete, which simply is this, it's, it's, a, it's a passive word that means to come alongside and help. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and helps us. And Paul tells the church, he says, do that for one another. See, all of this, the Christian faith, it's community. Unlike the self-gratifying false believers, Paul tells us that we need each other. And as Christians, we love to focus on our orthodoxy, which is right teaching, but often fail in our orthopraxy, which is right living. I'm that person. For a long time, I've just thought, if I just have the right doctrines, if I read the right books, I'm good. But times I can be very cold to people. We have to move away from the consumerist way of church, believing that we are here for ourselves and what we can get. We have to remember when we walk into this building, it's not for ourselves. First, it's for God, and two, it's for each other. There's something I want to point out, too, is this, is that these aren't just young women in faith. These are mature believers. He goes on to describe them as being incredibly important to his ministry in the gospel years prior. And he even goes as far as he says, guess what their name is in the book of life? These aren't just some, you know, half-hearted people. They're integral to the church in Philippi. And quite possibly at the very first time that he met the people in Philippi. And I want to make a side note here is this, is that I'm not here to argue the doctrines of women in ministry. But I, I do want to say is this, is that Paul did not fear women. And I know that right now there's a lot happening in the world. We're seeing a lot come to head in our relationship between men and women. And we're seeing a lot of abuse. And I, I'm sorry to say, but the church has not been innocent in this. We're just as guilty. We shouldn't be, but we are. But I want you, if you're a woman today listening, I want you to know this, that one, that you matter. You matter to Jesus. You matter to the church. And you matter to the gospel. That we can't do this without you. And so in Ephesians 4.3, he says this. He says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It takes work, church. It's not easy, but it takes work. We're different in our experiences with people. 
and we're different in our experiences of situations, of circumstances. He, he loves us. I think it's something like 13 times in the letter that he uses the word joy. And that word joy is, is, is cheerful and calmly happy, glad, well off. So a lot of times when I grew up as a kid in church, I used to hear this division, right? So uh, happiness is worldly, it's fleeting, it's shallow, right? It's circumstantial. And then they would say, oh, but joy, joy is biblical. Joy only comes from God, right? Joy is despite the circumstances. But as I've grown up and I've looked into stuff, you know what's kind of interesting is the Bible uses them interchangeably. It doesn't, it doesn't separate. The Bible says joy, happiness, blessedness, gladness. What's different is our understanding of our joy. So there's this thing called common grace in theology. And it's the idea that God gives grace even to people outside of the cross. So we, we ask a lot of the questions, is how can good things happen to bad people? Well, this is common grace. So look at a couple verses. In Psalm 145.9, it says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Right? In Matthew 5.45, uh, Jesus talking, he says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the just and on the unjust. See, we talk about God being a good father in the context of the cross, but have we ever stopped to think that God is a good father to all people? So here's the thing, is that somebody can look at a mountain, in all of his glory, and find happiness in it. And they can be in awe of it, and they can say, I love this. This energizes me. Or somebody who's really into food, and they can have this amazing meal, and it can bring so much joy to them. And that was so good, right? But the problem is, is yes, it is circumstantial. So they have to have that again to experience that joy. But in the cross, we recognize that it's God who gives all joy, not just the mountain. So our joy is in the creator of the mountain, not the mountain itself. That's what the cross does. It illuminates that truth to us. So, Paul, which is interesting, I love this, wanted to go to Asia to preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit stopped him. And he said, nope. And then there's a man who has a dream, right? In this dream, he says, Paul, come to Macedonia. Preach the gospel. So Paul says, okay. We're going to Macedonia. Right? He gets in there. He meets the people of Philippi. Starts a church. But in that process, he's arrested and thrown into jail. He's beaten, right? So Paul wanted to go to Asia. That's where he thought he should have gone. And the Holy Spirit says, no, I want you to come here. A lot of us would have gone there and said, wow, this was kind of, this wasn't a success, right? I mean, I got beaten. I'm in jail. And we'd have said, God, where are you? What's going on? This is, I thought it was going to be great. But Paul says, guess what? This is for my good, that the gospel would be proclaimed. So Paul, in the midst of everything, he understands that it doesn't matter what the situation is, that his joy is grounded in the immovable God of everything. And so Paul doesn't say ignore situations. He doesn't say ignore what you're going through. The Bible says weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But the thing is, is that our foundation of joy is always there. It's always constant. And then Paul moves on to this. He says, in another experience, he says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. He's building here. That word graciousness is really gentleness that doesn't hold to the letter of the law. It doesn't keep an account that demands what is due according to rights. Oh, we Americans love our rights, don't we? We love them. We will go to the grave holding on to our rights, don't we? And yet Paul says this. He says, guess what? Your graciousness, let it be known to everyone. It's where there isn't a moral issue, let it go. 
bite your tongue. I think there's a beauty in this because we have to remember that people aren't at the same place in their walk with God. We have to remember that people are different points. And we need to be sensitive to that. And so he's building. And then he moves from graciousness into anxiety. Do not be anxious for anything. The word is burden for and care for and have a strong feeling for. The word worry comes from it. And in German, vergen, it means to strangle. And in English, it means to harass by tearing, biting, or snapping, especially at the throat. For those that have a lot of worry, do you feel like that sometimes? That the things of life are just choking you out. That they're pursuing you. And Paul says, don't be anxious for anything. And notice that word anything. It literally means anything. Paul doesn't say, don't have anxieties. He says, don't be anxious for anything. But through prayer and supplication, give them to God. He says, they're going to come. It's going to happen. Don't be foolish. But don't burden the weight yourself. Give it to God. And so, in all of this, how do we be different? Our foundation is different. Because we know that Christ is coming again, we can be different. Our values are different. We think differently. We focus on people, not on programs and our experiences. And our experiences are different. And before you think that this is all done by you, Look at what Paul says. In verse 1, it says this. He says, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 5, he says, the Lord is near. And what's so cool about that word near is it's both a definition of proximity and time. And so Paul talks about the nearness of God. And he says, guess what? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, which means it's really hard to let things go. But I can do it because he's coming again. My eyes are lifted to heaven. But it also could mean, let your reasonableness be known to everyone because he is there close to you to help you when you're dealing with that really super frustrating person. I just don't have the strength. But guess what? The Lord is near. In verse 7, it says, The peace of God will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. And finishing up in verse chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, he says, By the power, which really says, according to, and what's so cool about that word is somebody who's giving an example about it. And so if I have a million dollars and I give you a thousand dollars, I've given you out of my riches. Okay? I've given you out of my riches. But if I have a million dollars and I give you $10,000, I've given you according to my riches. Do you see the difference? Okay? So what, what Paul is saying here is, is in all of this, the way we relate to people, it's, it's, it's because of the truth we know. Like, he is coming back. He has the victory. So we can do these things. We can be different. And it's according to his power. So when you are exhausted and you come in and you say, I just can't deal with that person, guess what? It's not by your power. It's by his and when you come in and you're like, I, you know, I haven't, been, I haven't been thinking the right thoughts. It's just really hard. I'm being overwhelmed with anxiety, with the frustrations of life. Guess what? It's according to his power that we do this. Father God, we thank you so much 
for who you are, for just the way that you've empowered us, that you haven't left us alone, that you, uh, you don't expect us to do this by ourselves, God. God, I love that you have set the standard, Jesus. You said if you have any question about how this works, look to me. And even when you look to me and you say that's almost impossible, you say, guess what? I'm here. I'm near. I will strengthen you. And Lord, we ask that God, you would work in our hearts. I know uh, this isn't that glamorous of a sermon. In fact, Paul in, in three, he says, he says, guess what? I'm going to say these things again, and it's not hard for me to do it, but it's for your benefit. And I'm the same way. So I just need things beaten into my head sometimes. I need to hear them over and over again. And I, I think we all know that we need to love each other. And I think we all need to, I think we know that we need to be forgiving and, and kind and gentle. But God, we just need to hear it again and again and again because we are sinful. And so I pray that today there's something in our heart where we need to make amends with somebody. If we need to, to be like Udaya and Sintaji, that we need to, need to go and to fix the relationship so that the glory of Christ might be prevalent, I pray that we would be the, 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 the most courageous people to do that. I pray that Highland Gospel would be known for each other. That people would come in and, 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 and they would know the power of Christ that they would know the grace of Jesus and the love of the church, Lord. And so we ask all of this in your name. Amen and amen.